0: Alright, so I sort of tipped my hand a little bit already to, um, um, to where we're going to go and uh, tonight in the book of Joshua, but before we begin the book of Joshua, we're going to uh, turn to the book of Genesis, so if you want to keep a finger, because in order for us to really begin to understand uh, this whole idea of the holy wars of the nation of Israel, she uh, begins to go in to take the promised land, it's really important for us to get a grasp of, of how it is that God is just, you know, with respect to the treatment of the Canaanites, and, and how it is that, um, you know, how do we make sense of the fact that, that uh, uh, God is loving, uh, that he also is just, and how those things converge here uh, with respect to what's going on. What the nation is commanded to do. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. And we'll begin to get a little bit of an insight into uh, really the heroic nature of God uh, with respect to, to, to Canaan. In, in Genesis chapter 9, we're, we're familiar with the idea that, uh, that we're dealing with Noah, right? In Genesis chapter 9, uh, the flood had, has occurred. Noah and his family now are on dry ground and uh, we, we just want to think about everything that had just happened, uh, that uh, humanity had grown so wicked and so evil uh, in, in Noah's generation that God repented of the fact that he had even created them. And, and what we mean by that is not just sort of uh, uh, evil and and. In the sense of thinking wrong thoughts or feeling wrong feelings, no these were this was evil in its darkest sense uh evil in action, uh evil in, in sort of a, a terrorizing kind of a reality. This was men doing that which was right in their own eyes and and there was no governance uh, the only person that we know was protected uh, by God or really had any information given to them about. God and his requirement was Cain and remember he himself was a murderer right i got that name right Cain are you with me okay and god had put upon him a sign and a seal that if anyone were to hurt him they would be cursed and you know Cain obviously had had a curse as well but the point is uh, uh there's no real governance there's no sense of there there's probably oral tradition oral revelation through patriarchs, but they grew very dim and dark. There was the line, uh, the promised line, and, and things just got bad probably very fast and came to Noah. Noah's called out, builds an ark, saves his family, but the rest of the world, women, children, men, older people, animals, the whole of it is judged justly by God for the evil and wicked realities of who they were. And um, you can imagine that day that the rains fell and, and the terror those hearts felt, and, and yet not one of them repented. All that was lifted up were fists into the face of Noah and, and against the ark and against the God of, of, of heaven. There, there was no repentance uh, in that day. And so that being the reality, we come into this uh, Genesis chapter 9... And and beginning at verse 18, we have this interaction now between Noah and his sons. And and it says here, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of who? All right, now we need to note that. He's the father of the Canaanites. Okay, this is where Joshua's going to go in, right, to Canaan. So he's the father of the Canaanites, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done. So he said, What? Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. But let Canaan be his servant. Then it goes on to talk about Noah and how long he lived. So we have this episode uh, in the Noah narrative about about Ham foreshadowing the reality of Canaan. Now, now we've got to think about this. God had just wiped out the whole of the earth for exactly what Ham did to Noah, which essentially was disrespect Noah and instead of... (laughs) instead of uh, being alarmed or concerned, sort of just went and told his brothers, and we're not sure, the narrative doesn't tell us all of the detail, but it does tell us what his brothers did in contrast to him. And that was, as they walked in backward, they did not look at their father, and they covered him with a blanket as they walked backwards. And the question is, well, well, why is that significant? Well, we could argue that it's significant because For lots of reasons. Number one, Noah was the patriarch. Noah, if you will, was the priest. Noah, what we mean by that, is Noah was the vehicle of revelation from the God of heaven. And in that sense, he was was to be respected and revered. And the whole generation preceding or in Noah's day that was lost to the flood waters were a people who gave absolutely no credibility, no credence, no, re- no reverence to the revelation of God through Noah. Remember, how long had he preached righteousness? Hundreds of years. And there's absolutely no repentance. And here Ham is, he's, he's taking up that spirit And he's in a mocking sense, in a shameful sense, completely disregarding uh, the revelatory vehicle, I would argue, of the God of heaven uh, for the the whole of the earth at this point. It was basically Noah and his sons, and they were the one to populate it. And um, so so this becomes a a severe breach of, 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 of respect and reverence for the interests of God for the interests of, of, of Jehovah, for the whole of the world. And, and this is going to become a problem. Then we jump over to Deuteronomy chapter 20. God didn't forget this, this curse. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, we have a whole chapter, and really the, the second giving of the law, that deals with sort of the, the rules of engagement, if you will, for the nation of Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20. It's really the whole chapter is given over to it. You see, uh, titling, uh, the head of my scriptures there is the laws of warfare. So when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people He shall say to them, hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. And and, and on it goes. And then it talks about, in verse number 10, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. We mentioned this passage earlier already in our study, uh, I think in week one. And if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword, only the women, the children, the animals, and all that is in the city and all its spoils you shall take as booty for yourselves. You shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not of the cities of, of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You shall not leave Alive, anything that breathes of these people. These are the people who are in the land of Canaan who are nearby the nation of Israel. These ones are to be exterminated, annihilated. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And here's the reason. Uh, and, and remember, go all the way back in your mind's eye to Genesis 3.15. We have a promised Messiah, Right? That promise is, only, is almost lost in the generation of Noah because things get so horrifically bad. Because God is going to be true to Genesis 3.15 and unlike the angelic host who only had one chance at it, they had one test, those that failed are condemned in the demonic horde and will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Only one chance. God wants to give human beings lots of chances, or another chance, or a second chance. Genesis three fifteen. We are—we are not a company; we procreate, and we have this great capability to, to reproduce and to 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 see a generational faith and 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 blessing and heavenly hope, and the curse being somewhat reversed in our lives until the Lord Jesus comes and finally reverses it. So so we're thankful for that. So then it's almost lost and God has to heroically intervene with a flood to cleanse it all out and to start all over again. And 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 then God in Genesis 9 He gives man the right to govern himself, right? We have capital punishment being established. So up to that time man did not have the right from God to govern himself. But now he does. And, and we also have then this curse on him. In other words, uh, God's going to move his children right into the, the, the belly of the beast, if you will. And, and, and in the place that if it is allowed to continue to infect, it could very much have the same impact that was had upon Noah's generation. So he's going to take this nation and he's going to plant them right there. And he says this, he says, So that they may not teach you to do according to all their what things? Their detestable things. This is evil in action. This is not just theoretic evil. This is is evil in action. These are dark, dark realities. Which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. So... Deuteronomy 20, we have the laws of warfare for the Canaanites. They needed to be annihilated. They were going to be judged. And remember, if God is just in the macro judgment of the whole of the world in, 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 in the flood waters, this is God being just in mercy. This is God segmenting out a few. And removing them so that the hope of the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ can become a reality on earth so that men and women can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is huge. And this is, this is, this is not just simply justice. This is mercy kissing justice. And giving the world at large the opportunity um, to hear and to know, to understand the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so those two key passages, I hope they help inform you as, as our sensibilities are, are a little challenged as we come into Canaan. And uh, I hope we see it, uh, number one, I hope we see ourselves embodied in the Canaanites. I hope we see and understand that they are our offspring. They are They are. Our, our forefathers and that we have given the same set of circumstances would rush to the same sorts of realities that, that, that they embraced and, and but thankfully the Lord Jesus Christ has intervened in our life and, and we, we were those folks and, 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 and so we're humbled we're, we're amazed that, that God would would take us who were not a people We who were Canaanite-like, or this is our forefathers, and those Gentile nations uh, that that are proud and problematic throughout the history of the world, God has intervened, and he has called us out. We who are not a people, he has made us a people. And, And it really helps us understand why it is so shocking from a Jewish consciousness that the Gentiles would ever have a place in the redemptive plan of the Messiah. It truly is shocking, and it ought to shock us. It ought to leave us with this sense of, this is unbelievable. You know? Particularly when we read in Leviticus 18, what exactly the things that God wanted to keep the nation of Israel from, particularly in Canaan, all the way down to bestiality, and these practices that are just so vile. And, uh, and so, so we, we want to be thankful. So really our, our point tonight is this. Uh, is If I had a proposition, it's this. And, and, I, and I have not created this myself. I've borrowed it from a book that I've been reading. But I think it's apropos. And that is this. is that self-exaltation not only dethrones God, but it dehumanizes man. Self-exaltation not only dethrones God, it absolutely dehumanizes man. And we're going to see that God heroically acts, as he always does, against that dehumanization. And he's going to establish a testimony for himself. Um, and we'll see that tonight. So, so with that in the backdrop, the first truth we want to see is we think of God heroically doing something In the book of Joshua. The first thing we want to see, and and, and really as we apply it into our own context, is this is that God is heroically self-centered in the book of Joshua. God is heroically self-centered in the book of Joshua. Now that may strike your fancy a little odd because we know that being self-centered as an individual human being is absolutely off-limits for you and I. And that is because we have that old sin nature, and we are finite, and we are corrupt. So when we pursue our own self-interest, we're we're often pursuing things that are contrary to the will and way of holiness, and therefore they lead to paths or places of of human corruption, moral corruption. Romans chapter 1, we just are good at suppressing truth. But God is not like you and I. God is wonderfully heroic when he is self-centered, when he has his own glory as the core of his interests. And I want to I develop that thought here. You know, the spirit of our age favors a, more of a therapeutic perspective on God. Uh, when you say, well, what is a therapeutic perspective on God? Well, a therapeutic perspective on God sort of views God as uh, somebody who wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. That's hugely important, and, and uh, this is sort of what the Bible teaches, and, and we can actually find some expressions of this in other world religions. And therefore, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about ourselves. This is what God is all about. This is the therapeutic view of God. So in effect, we see God as nothing more than a therapist helping us out with our problems so we can be happy. But folks, mark it down. That is so contrary to the witness of the word of God. God does not exist to be your therapist. God is heroically self-interested. And everything he does... For you, for me, for humanity, in acts of miracle and providence, he always has first and foremost in view his own self-interest and his own glory. He has no equal and he tolerates no rival, including you and me. The whole concept of redemption is not because... He feels bad for us per se. The whole concept of redemption exists because it glorifies God and himself. And he's interested in glorifying himself. And well, he should be. Because he's holy. And when you glorify holiness, it's pretty much good for everybody. <laughs> and that's what we want to see here tonight. And You say... Um, well, prove that to me, Pastor Kent, that God is heroically self-centered. Well, let's take a look at uh, Joshua chapter 5 now. We'll, we'll properly get into Joshua chapter 5. Uh, we'll just try to drop into some of these, um, these narratives. Joshua chapter 5. Um, verses 13 to 15. This is um, um, just sort of an interesting response. Um, this is after the, the circumcision, and, and now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, uh, this is a Hebrew idea. We want you to take a long, lingering look. A man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And what did the angel of the Lord say? If you have an NIV, what did he say? He said neither. If you have a New American Standard? He said no. <laughs> and uh, it's a tricky passage. And so he says neither. He says no. Rather, I indeed come now. At, I, I represent who? I'm captain of the of the hosts of the. Lord, I, Joshua, do not have your interests in view. I do not have your enemies' interests in view. I am captain of the hosts of the Lord. I have Jehovah's interests in view. Now, it's true. Some would argue. Uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Net Bible. Is anybody familiar with that? Uh, I think Pastor Steve on occasion has given those out to youth group and uh, they, may, they make an argument that in the Hebrew, the word no and the word answered both sound the same. So they would translate this. They would say, uh, he said, I come to you now as a captain of the host. Of, or he answered is what they would. That, but all of the normal translations that you and I tend to read uh, do see this as a, a negative, a contrary statement. That... Joshua, I am not held in the prison of two ideas, of two parties. I have a singular interest. And that's going to have implications for the nation of Israel. And that's going to have interest for those who are the enemies of God. No one, no one has an inside track Because the angel of the Lord, we would call this a a Christophany, probably theophany for sure, a Christophany, a uh, a, pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would argue. you remember Dr. Joel Hustetler? How many of you remember Dr. Hustetler? He was here for a while. His whole dissertation is on the angel of the Lord. And I read that and was blessed by it. And if you want some of, so I'll give him credit, a lot of this goes to him, all right? Um. So, uh, Joshua's experience teaches us that God is heroically self centered. This is a heroic deed. This is a good thing that the angel of the Lord is not compelled by either being on Joshua's team or on the pagans' team, that he's on Jehovah's team. And this is going to be critical, and this is wonderful. Um, And we're so thankful for that. The arrangement going into the promised land was not to be seen as one of equals in an alliance. This arrangement was not a quid pro quo. Joshua's only response as commanded by the commander of the armies of Jehovah was to worship. Take off your shoes for the place upon which you stand is holy ground. We do not debate. We do not enter into agreements. You do as you're told and you worship me. Let's get this straight, Joshua. Let's get this straight. This is not about you. This is going to be about the God of heaven. Um, We would argue that God's alliance is to himself and to his will. He is properly self-centered. As the holy, sovereign, omnipotent creator God, it is never a proper question. Never. As to whether God is on my side or not. That's the wrong question. The question... The proper question is whether we are on God's side or not. It's akin to what Jesus warned about, that many of you will, will split eternity, and you will, you will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful works in your name? And, and Jesus' reply, reply will be, depart from me for what? What? I never knew you. That's what's salient. It is not salient whether you think you know Jesus or not. See, it's a matter of terms. What's salient is does Jesus know me? And the neat thing is Jesus will tell you what you will look like if you know him. This is huge. This is is humbling, and it's meant to be humbling to Joshua. It's meant to help him understand that this is going to lay on his life a weight of responsibility, a weight on the life of the nation of Israel. They're going to have a responsibility, a huge responsibility. God's allegiance is to himself. Because he is the source of all truth, because he is the end of all truth, he is always on the side of truth, and it is only truth that matters to him. He does not worry about who's right or who's wrong. He worries about the truth, and he executes his will with respect to the truth. Israel had no inside track, none whatsoever. We see this again as it really applies to the nation of Israel. Turn over to chapter 7. Joshua 6, now chapter 7 here. Now we're dealing with the issue of Achan, the sin of Achan, and and, uh, the defeat at Ai, and the embarrassment of the nation, and and Joshua uh, uh, just wondering what's going on. Um, And we have have, uh, uh, God's attention now being drawn to those who were supposedly to be in alliance with him. And he's executing judgment on them to illustrate the fact that God is self, properly self-interested. He's properly self-interested. And he's executing judgment on them. And so much so that the nation, uh, in chapter 7-1, in you pick up the context... Um, they acted, this is the whole, the sons of the nation of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Dropping down to chapter or verse number 15. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things, it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the band shall be burned with fire, and he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. It is a disgraceful thing. The NIV says, "What does anybody have an NIV on their lap?" It uses the word "it is outrageous." It is disgraceful to do anything contrary to the revealed will of the God of heaven who is properly self-interested. It is disgraceful, it is outrageous, it is ludicrous, it is insanity. Because there is no inside track. And you are moving the God of heaven to judgment those who ought to be executing his will that's just what God does verse 25 we're told that it's trouble who has brought this trouble on us and it's trouble because there's no inside track God must execute and then chapter 7 verse 26 we have guess what we have another pile of rocks and they raised over him, that's Achan, a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the, Lord turned, uh, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. So there's, there's this heap of rocks, this pile of rocks with respect to God's own people. Reminding them that nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing. Nothing. Remember the former pile of rocks that was brought up out of the dry Jericho? Remember that pile? That reminded us, that was a reminder to the pagans, that was with respect to the pagans, that their idols could do nothing to stop Jehovah when he was on the march. This pile of rocks has to do with respect to the nation, and they both are testifying the truth that God is properly self-interested, and he is pursuing his own glory. So, we're going to put a pile of rocks up for both of those truths. And you need to be well warned. And when the children ask, the truth that you want to give them is there is no inside track, child. God does not serve at our pleasure, He is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He is interested in His own glory. You are welcome to come along and participate. He leads the way. So it follows that if God is heroically committed to himself and his own glory, then secondly tonight, he must be heroically committed to his word, and he absolutely is. Heroically so. I want you to see this as a good thing. <laughs> this is a heroic thing that God does. Because in so doing, keeping himself as the standard and the motion of his movements Keeps sin out of the picture. And it enables at any time for God's people to know revival and renewal when they realign themselves with the truths of God's Word and live according to His interests, values, and desires. If it was any other thing, we would be hopeless. We would be lost in any one generation. Where the inside track got off the track, and we have no hope. So this is a heroic thing. We're thankful that God's committed to these things, to his own self-interest, his own glory, and now to his word, his word. Uh, uh, this commitment is demonstrated uh, in, in matters of assurance. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 19, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> This is having to do with the information regarding the crossing of the Jordan River. He says this. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come, come here and hear, hear the words of the Lord, your God. And then Joshua goes on and he talks about the fact that They're going to need to go over the Jordan River, and they're going to cross over on dry ground. This this is how you will know, he says, that the living God is among you. You will know he is among you when you see the waters of the Jordan dry up. Unlike your enemies, who heard about that, and their hearts melted in fear... When you hear it and see it and experience, I want you to be fully assured that I am with you. That I am with you. You know, inspiration, the miracle of inspiration, the miracle of inspiration of God having men write down the truth uh, that that was heard and then writing it for us. help them or this word from God help them understand what the significance of the drying up of the Jordan was all about they were told ahead of the event they must listen to these words of the lord and so the matters of their own personal assurance weren't left to wondering or what is this all about or perhaps coming to the conclusion of some of the pagan neighbors around like whoa I mean I've never seen a river dry up I know for me just without any other information this would be creepy number one number two I'm not sure I'm going to walk through it and oh by the way this is 600,000 people walking across I don't like this right it's a terrifying reality but God uses his word and he says, no, I want you to view this as a matter of assurance. I want you to see this in its right and proper perspective. I am with you. And nothing, no Baal God with his supposed boundary in the Jordan River, remember that? Is going to stop me from taking this land. And you need to be fully assured of that. And you need, but you need to listen. You've got to listen. You've got to hear my words. Every and all my words are important in chapter 7 verse 10 let's get over there here's a here's another interesting just I mean Joshua is a leader yes but he's constantly in this mode of learning as a leader he never stops learning because the king of the of the, the nation has interests in continuing to teach Joshua about himself and here we now have this another another thing we, we have um Uh, We have the loss, the the embarrassing loss at Ai. Remember that loss came upon the nation of Israel because Achan... Had stolen things from Jericho and he had buried them in his tent. Remember those things were were devoted to the Lord. Remember Jericho's the first city that Israel is taking in the promised land, and therefore all of the spoil in the first city is going is dedicated to the Lord. all of it it 's all going to go into the coffers of the tribe of Levi and they're going to live off it as they work hard at helping the nation worship the God of heaven. This is the first tithe, if you will. This is the first fruits. Jericho belonged to Jehovah. However, Achan took some gold, a robe, and he dug it and he hid it under his tent. Didn't know about that. The army goes out to Ai, a small portion of the nation of Israel, and they get whooped. They get whooped. And everybody's in turmoil, and, and Joshua comes up with this prayer in verse 6. He says, And Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you? If only we had been willing to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, you, you, It's your name that's at stake. In verse ten, what is this? Is ridiculous. Jehovah comes to him and says, "Look." So the Lord said to Joshua, "Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face?" He said, "It's ridiculous. I've already." He says, "I've already told you. Israel has sinned. They've also transgressed. He already had been given that information. Get up off your face, Joshua. Analyze the problems." the word that I've already shared. And it'll be very clear and simple. It says, get up off your face. Get up off your face. I've already clearly told you the only thing that could make this go wrong, Joshua, and it is not that I'm a capricious or somehow as Jehovah that I'm capricious or somehow given to last minute changes. No remember my word to you already I made it very clear use my word to analyze why there is a stop in the forward movement in the promised land somebody has sinned he had already made that clear and Joshua needed to act on that so Joshua so God gave him the orders but this wasn't a God problem this was a people problem God had already said it would be if there was a problem how about matters of national renewal is that, is that God being committed to his word chapter 8 verse 30 look at this chapter 8 verse 30 so now we have finally AI all, all that gets fixed you know, uh, under the weight of the rocks that now sit on top of Achan um, chapter 8 AI is, 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 is finally beat This time they're more cautious. The whole army goes out. There's a wonderful battle plan, and it works to a T. And and then we have this covenant renewal in verse number 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is... What? As it is written. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses... An altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Verse 32, "He what? He wrote, "There on the stones a what? A copy of the law of Moses. So not only do they build the altar according to what is written, in the presence of all these people, Joshua writes out the law of Moses. Probably the Ten Commandments for sure, and maybe more. Writing the law of God out. what uh, Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers, their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native, half of them stood in the front of Mount Gerizim, the half of them in the front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had, com- had given command at first to bless the people. So all, this is, all these people are witnessing this writing. In the presence of the sons of Israel, all these people, all of Israel, the elders, the officers, the judges, standing on both sides of the what? Guess who else is there? God is there the theocratic king, and he's watching Joshua write it. This is amazing. Verse 34, then what happened? (laughs) They read all the words that were written. Wow. Verse 35, how many words that Moses commanded were not read? None of them. They were all read. We're writing, we're copying, we're reading, all of them for everyone. God is heroically committed to his word, dearly beloved. And he's just as heroically committed to his word today. We have an amazing, robust witness in the the Pauline core, in in the the New Testament, of our in-Christ realities, of what trouble means in our life, all of our vulnerabilities and sensibilities and emotions, and and God tells us exactly what it's all about in his word. And he is not heroically committed to what you think about yourself. He's heroically committed to what his word says about you. That's what he's heroically committed, and he will always be there heroically committed when you're ready. When you're ready, he will continually be heroically committed to his word, and it Will always be sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness in your life. Mark it down. You do well to write it all out, to listen to it, to make sure everybody in your presence is watching you do it, and every word, all of it, be consumed with God's word. Be consumed with God's word. There's a priority of God's words in matters of assurance, a priority of God's word in matters of prayer, priority of God's word in every written word for his people's renewal. That word will always be there. So God is heroically self-centered. He's heroically committed to his word. And finally tonight, God is heroically active in providence. Heroically active in providence. And we see this really in, in chapter um, 4, verse 14. Let's go there real quick. 4.14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. What do you think the number one concern that Joshua had in stepping into the shoes of Moses? They will... I I could never do that. They're never gonna Listen. listen to me. Not like they listened to Moses. I don't got all that skill. I don't have... You know. And on and on it goes. God providentially and how did he do it? <clears throat> well, Moses crossed the nation over on dry ground over the Red Sea. Guess what God asked Joshua to do? Hey, I want you to take this nation on dry ground across the swollen Jordan River. Remember the javelin, the 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 the, you know, the first battle that Joshua fought in, or at least that we know of, the first of the holy wars. Remember Aaron and her on the mountain and the staff of God? Well, Joshua had a javelin. I think it was in the battle of Ai that he had to keep pointing. <laughs> he had that. God in his providence <clears throat> helped Joshua and commanded Joshua in such skillful ways that when people saw Joshua, they said, that's Moses. God just has a tremendous capability to take care of all that, dearly beloved. You just be faithful. You just understand that God is heroically committed to his own self-interest and his own glory. You just just, just be thrilled by the fact that God is heroically committed to his word, specifically in renewal, that God's people can renew themselves at any moment in time. And God will take care of the rest. Leaders, dads in your homes, as you're the leader. So We're leaders here in our local New Testament church. We're always wondering, I can't do it as good as the generation that was ahead of me. That's just not true. God will providentially take care of what he needs to take care of. You just be faithful. You apprehend the lessons of the angel of the Lord for your life. Humble yourself. Understand there's no inside track get busy about glorifying God as God glorifies himself we know that uh, again we have that same sort of idea in chapter 6 verse 27 <clears throat> uh, some neat way there that Joshua <laughs> creates a, a, pronounces a curse who else pronounced curses Moses did he was a revelatory source of truth from God Moses was the great revealer Right? The author of Hebrews compares Moses to Jesus and says Jesus far exceeds even Moses in Revelation. But Joshua, he revealed some things too. A curse on Jericho that in fact came to be in 1 Kings chapter 16. Negatively, we know Jehovah providentially was active in the lives of his enemies to fill them with fear. Rahab's report, the two spies report in chapter 5 verse 1 about the crossing of the Jordan on dry ground and what impact that had on the enemies of the Lord. And then we have the story of the Gibeonites. We don't have time for them, but they, they too are equally <clears throat> gathered up in God's providence, even though it was a failure in behalf of the nation of Israel to inquire uh, upon, or to, to pray, to ask truth from the Lord. They failed to do that. But God still worked providentially through that. And the five kings came down to destroy Gibeah because of their alliance with Israel. And of course, Israel, they're, they're allied now. And because they believe in, in, in covenants and because they believe in staying faithful to their covenant, because they know who is self-interested in his own glory, and if they don't retain a promise, they're going to get, so they've got to go up. And they literally wipe out these five kings. And it just furthers the advancement of the nation of Israel in the promised land as they're established. Uh, So even even the challenge of Gibeon and their lie and and all of that is used amazingly for the sake of the Lord. So in conclusion tonight, you know there's an irony that God aims to expose. Namely that self-exaltation is in fact dehumanization. God adds to the all-important truth that self-exaltation dethrones God. And this is a quote from a man who writes very deeply in God's providence. God adds to the all-important truth that self-exaltation dethrones God. To that truth, he reveals the additional truth that self-exaltation dehumanizes man. The irony is that human autonomy feels like we have gained significance or some inside track with God. We've gained significance when in fact we have lost and will lose sanity. Freedom from God feels exhilarating or or some sort of inside track feels exhilarating, but it's the exhilaration of skydiving without a parachute, this author says. Apart from the Holy Spirit, all humans fall for this lie, this, this idea that we can be... We have this sort of inside track that God is not just marching on his own interests and it's our joy and delight to join those and to fall into those. And we fail to do that. We can expect our lives to not be what they are. We talk about mental health, don't we, a lot in this day and age, right? I'll tell you, the pathway to good mental health is paved with good theology, good biblical theology, You know, you want good mental health, no God. Remember, no God. Here's the issue it is the glory of humanity, it's the glory of man, not to be God, but to know God. That's our glory. And and, and all of the issues in life are, are brought into level focus as we begin to understand who God is. It is well said. That the most important thing about any one of us is what we think and believe about God. So I'd encourage you to, to have your heart and mind well informed by truth of the word of God. And certainly the book of Joshua gives us a lot of uh, interesting challenges when we think about who God is. God is heroically, heroically committed to his own self interests. And be thankful for that. God is heroically, heroically committed to what he's already said heroically committed to his word and God is heroically active in providence sovereignty is over but it's not just sort of an over sovereignty it has purpose and intent providence brings sovereignty into your life and mine and he's always active he's always interested and he's pursuing his self-interest through your life may God be glorified may the church be about the business of not seeking to be God, but to know God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for our time tonight. We we confess that we rightly feel well put in our place, just like Joshua did several times. Lord, there are times we just need to get off our face and stop praying and start doing what God's word has told us to do. Lord, forgive us for not being as committed to your word as you are at times. And so, Lord, help us in that, not that prayer is not important. It's good to be humble that way, but, but you've made your will often very clear. and We thank you for that. We thank you that you are interested in what you are interested in, that there is no inside track, that we equally, like our unsaved friends and neighbors, are, are held captive to the idea that, God, you alone are worthy of worship, and we are here to seek to live for you, to love you, to learn about you, and to obey you. We thank you, Jesus, that you've so changed us, that we desire to do that, and in so doing it, God, we enjoy what Jesus said is true, that that burden, that yoke is light. We find it so, and we're so thankful for that. For those who are under the sound of my voice who don't know you yet, we pray that the Spirit of God would draw them to this amazing God, this God who is not bound, who is not held captive by the the limitations of humanity or anything that we would try to, sort of handcuff him with God you cast all that aside and you are pursuing your own glory and we rejoice in that and we thank you for that uh, um, confront us with that truth if need be we love you in Jesus name amen all right you